In the time of the Buddha, <clears throat> when one chose or decided to commit oneself to the teachings and practice, to follow in the, the Buddha's footsteps, so to speak, this was not seen or described as something like becoming ordained as a monk or a nun. It wasn't referred to or understood as becoming a Buddhist or even taking up the path of meditation, (coughs) insight, vipassana. What it was described as was to take up the, the homeless life, to go forth from the home life into homelessness. And I'd like to reflect this morning on what that might mean for us. Homelessness is the, is the word that the, the Buddha used to describe what it meant to take up and follow his teaching fully in a committed and wholehearted way. This experience of what we call home and homelessness as a counterpoint to it is I think very, or what we might refer to as home or homelessness, is very much a central feature of how we can understand our mind and its way way of operating, its habitual way of operating and equally how it can be experienced in a liberated condition. We can see, if we look at our lives, how much time we spend procuring, maintaining, upgrading or improving what we call our homes. And, of course, it's important and right that we put time and energy into this. We need somewhere to live, whether it be somewhere long-term permanent and uh, owned by ourselves or whether it be somewhere relatively temporary or transient and uh, owned by someone else. We nonetheless do need to have somewhere that we can sleep and store our food and such things. That very simple natural human need for shelter and for protection that it offers, has its value, has its legitimacy. And yet I think we can also recognise that the amount of time and energy that we may, and we may also not, but that we may be drawn into spending on the procuring, the maintaining, the improving of that which we call our home, can be immense. It can become the vastly greater proportion of our life. And in that, caring for possessions, for home, for family, all of this, the energy, the resources of our life, if it is consumed in this way, we may feel some, at the end of our life, some degree of dissatisfaction with what that will produce for us, what the result of that will be. And so there's this invitation that the Buddha extends to us to explore the homeless life, 
And this isn't India in the 5th or 6th century before the Common Era. It's uh, England, Devon, Europe in the 21st century. And we're not necessarily saying that homelessness involves giving up or abandoning the physical structure that we might call our home. But to come on retreat, to enter into this space here, to do so in the spirit that we are invited to is really to embark upon a condition of homelessness, to embark upon a period of time where we make ourselves homeless. And for most of you, I guess apart from the coordinators who are here on retreat at this time and who are actually in their home or the place where they live, for everyone else, this is not where you live, generally. You may be here for some days, weeks, months on retreat. So there's a certain symbolic value of in that stepping away from our home, stepping out of the physical structure that we call home, coming into this situation that we call retreat, to see that there are much less responsibilities, much less duties, much less here that we need to undertake in order to maintain the basic physical needs that we have. And that's an element of of what's offered or what we receive in stepping away from our, our normal home life. And this really is the gift. The gift of homelessness is space. The Buddha often said in his uh, teachings or commented, reflected, he said, of, uh, and I really like the, uh, the very early translation, there's various versions of it, but uh, it says, the householder's life is dusty. And having recently been doing a bunch of renovations, I was in our home, um, very uh, often having cause to reflect on that. The householder's life is dusty, particularly when you're ripping out walls and ceilings. But even when not, it's dusty. He says, the householder's life is dusty. It is hard to make the mind as bright as a polished shell. And this would be the the reflection he would offer before, say, sort of extending the invitation. So why not go forth from the householder's life into homelessness? With the obvious invitation there of this potentiality for the mind to be as bright as a polished shell. Something quite delightful, I find. Something quite... uh, inviting in that to take robes and go forth here of course it's not so much taking robes as possibly a uh, old shawl of the sort one might find in the uh, in the blanket cupboard as I did with this one just a little while ago and going forth into retreat the dust which in the you know the images the metaphor that the the buddha spoke of not long after his enlightenment when he talked about Dust, or in fact, it was uh, technically, I guess, it was one of the uh, the Brahmas, Brahma Sahampati, who spoke to the Buddha about those who have little dust in their eyes and would be able to hear the teachings. There's something that would be able to receive the profundity of what he had to offer. Something about putting ourselves in a situation where there is less dust means potentially also less dust in our eyes, less to distract us, less to confuse us, less to obscure.
what is to be seen, what is to be understood, to be realized in Dharma practice. So it's a great gift we offer to ourselves to take up the homeless life. And so the space that it offers is the opportunity to pursue, to explore, to develop, to refine that which is of most value, of most importance to us in our lives. To become more clearer as to what that is and as to how we make this more fully manifest in our in our lives. And while we've and you've all made the step one way or another to renounce the home life, to come on retreat. It's interesting to reflect how the pattern, the tendency, the dynamic that runs within us that tends to lead us to want to create a home, to have a safe, secure, comfortable, attractive and um, possibly even impressive place to live, how that tends to play out in our situation, even on retreat. We may reflect as we sit and walk and... uh, cultivating qualities of mindfulness, openness, kindness, understanding. That in observing our experience, it's possible we might notice that we start to relate to what's happening here in a very, we could say, householder-like way, or kind of from a, a very worldly inclination or orientation in which we're looking for somewhere to make our home. We're looking for something, some experience, some condition or circumstance or attainment in which we will feel or have the sense that when we arrive there, when we attain it, when we get it together, bring it into being and sustain it, this will be a place where we can abide, where we can rest, where we can make ourselves at home, so to speak. We can see how we spend so much time in our lives seeking to get, to achieve, to have, to keep, to protect and preserve the things that we've gathered to us, that we've accumulated. Worldly possessions, but equally relationships and uh, inner experiences likewise. Trying to find, to keep, to preserve or maintain inner experience of any particular kind that we may have heard about and sounds like, hmm, I'd like some of that and when I get it things are going to be good and I'll kind of get to hang out there. Or that we may have experienced and found, wow, that was really uplifting or delightful or expansive or clearly liberating and insightful. And from that, the very powerful and understandable, but nonetheless not particularly helpful, urge to take hold of it, to keep it. And it's something that uh, is spoken of often in in the interviews. And uh, one will know very well that one isn't really served by trying to take hold of that experience that open, calm, peaceful place or that, that sweet, blissful, delightful, juicy place or that just sense of whatever it is that's touched us. And we know that taking hold of it doesn't make a lot of sense. And yet the urge, the pull to do so is strong. 
and to understand it in terms of it can be useful to understand it in terms of how much we're relating to our inner experiences if this is where we can make our home this is the place it's like ah yes this that sense of this did you ever go looking through windows and real estate agents going yes that one or go round to the one that looked interesting yes a friend of mine is just about to move um from where she lives 10 miles away to, or 8 miles away to the town I live in and you know she found this place and she goes in and she says yes this is it and it's great I'm not that keen on it myself but um, you know for her it's yes and great how lovely Catherine said yes as well so it's like okay well I'm outvoted obviously but um, you know that sense of how we feel that sense of <coughs> how it comes and and the sense, oh, when I get here, when I land, when I have this to rest in, the sense of the promise that it offers to us is, is compelling, is beguiling even. And of course the, the effect of that is the, the amount of energy we give to seeking to get and to keep and to hold the experiences and the result is the entanglement with those experiences, no matter how beautiful or how lofty, how noble. To be able to honour the places we experience that are of that nature, of that order, that we recognise as having value and potency, yes, but to see also how easily the urge to make our home in them just starts to come into the mind and if not seen actually starts to entangle us with the experience that had the potential to be liberating for us. So the great art of spiritual practice is the art of non-dwelling. It's interesting that word, isn't it? Dwelling. We talk about having a dwelling, like a place we live. And yet dwelling, when we talk about it from a meditative point of view, it's the the tendency to get hooked in and caught up and kind of spin around and around and around a point of reference that we're attached, attached or attaching to. Dwelling. So the art of non-dwelling. Learning what it means to move lightly in and through the field of experience, the flow of life. To not dwell anywhere. To not dwell anywhere. A radical invitation. To not make our home in anything, experience, place, position, or location. And to really take on what it means to live the homeless life is to take this to heart, to live the homeless life. Originally in the time of the Buddha, the uh, followers of his teaching and practice, the, the homeless ones in fact, they sometimes refer to themselves, practicing the homeless life, it makes sense, that's what, how they designate themselves. It was really quite an open life. They were wandering around from place to place. Over time, after periods of, as the Buddha became more well known and uh, gained some sort of, we could say, 
wealthy and influential followers. They were provided it with places and um, eventually buildings. And from the very you know, beginnings of being offered a sort of a park in which they could hang out to these days they're the very um, large and lovely and beautiful monasteries that are built and established. There's been a, a journey and a transition whereby from being a wandering order without homes, they actually have houses bigger than most of ours. And uh, from conversations with good friends in the, uh, in, the, uh, in the monastic order, I see they sometimes have to spend a lot of time dealing with administration, business, meetings, and all sorts of stuff that really was not what they got into that life for. And yet, just as we might think, you know, this is not what we want our life to be about, that process happens. So I'm saying that to describe this almost inevitable progression that takes place as we seek to establish and build something up. There is a certain construction that goes on, but we need to really examine it very carefully and, and look and see what the effect of it is. Because in and of itself, building a house or a, a vast and you know beautifully bejeweled monastery, as some in Asia, you find them incredibly beautiful. There's no nothing in and of itself in that that's wrong, except in insofar as we start to think that this is the point of our activity or the ultimate destination. So what we notice is that as we start to establish homes, there's somewhere we can be comfortable. There's somewhere where we can relax and rest, all of which is fine and useful and has its place. But what often happens when we're comfortable and warm and relaxed and feel safe is that there's really no reason to not go to sleep. And one of the, the potent effects of stepping out of that condition of really choosing to put down or to step out of what we call our home is there's something a little more edgy to it. It's not so easy to get comfortable or stay comfortable. I mean, Guy House is quite comfortable, really, compared to sort of a lot of conditions practitioners would have encountered 20, 30, 40 years ago trying to practice in Asia. Um, but compared to probably many of our homes, it might not be that comfortable. Unless it gets rather cold walking around in the corridors, we can't just go and turn the heating up. Sort of like umpteen hundred tons of solid stone that doesn't seem to warm up no, no matter how much heat you pump into it. Or the, the discomforts of not being able to just go to the fridge and eat some food whenever we want. It's nice having a fridge. don't have to be hungry. We have a fridge full of food at home. I do. And for this time you don't. There's a, you know, a range of teas which provide some degree of solace. Three or four different kinds of milk. You know, some illusion of choice. Opportunity for comfort. So it has its place. And yet there's something about not having so much. Not needing, not relying so much on those things that we seek to gather around us to preserve a sense of comfort or security. Now, I remember from uh, a few years of travelling in uh, New Zealand, where I come from, and Australia and Asia, 
before I came to live in Europe. Just the really amazing sense of what it was to, and I'm sure many of you will know this experience, to just travel with a small bag with a few things and not really too many plans. To kind of be homeless for a period of time. And to get into all sorts of complicated, difficult and sometimes painful or embarrassing situations. And yet to realise that for all the difficulties of that, there was a payback, there was a a trade-off that was worth it. In the, the sense of space, the sense of openness, the sense of potentiality, of possibility that opens up in that condition is immense. Is immense. And so... We practice here learning what it means to just move on, to not carry too much with us, to not seek to accumulate too much around us. Because whatever we carry, whether it be something beautiful and exalted, whether it be something painful or difficult, or something that we just think is going to be kind of useful if we keep it around, and that might be some particular insight we had, some unusual space of consciousness that we entered into and explored. Whatever it might be, or it might be that we've found the right cushion. And after years of searching, this is the one. And then sometimes we might wonder what would happen if someone should come and borrow it while we weren't in the hall. And maybe we take it with us and carry it around. Have you ever contemplated that? With something that seemed really important? I better keep it with me so I don't lose it. Have you noticed what happens if you keep doing that with all the things that are useful? I have the, uh, I'd say, good fortune and a great enjoyment on occasion to teach retreats involving being outdoors and walking rather than sitting in one place when you know, moving each day from place to place, camping. And uh, in that condition, one very quickly gets a, very, a, a direct sense of what it means to have to carry what one wants to keep comfortable with. You know, because actually you can take plenty of gear and make sure you stay warm, comfortable, well-fed, well-nourished and entertained while you're walking in the mountains. But you have to carry it. And if you take and put everything in your bag that you think you might possibly need, and this is what people tend to do the first time they do something like this, you end up with a very large bag. And when you get to stop and take the things out and put them on or around you, it's very nice. But so far as you're walking up a steep slope or down a rough track carrying them, it's absolutely painful and exhausting. And there's a really clear metaphor there. Because if one is willing to travel light, and at times that means being uncomfortable or not necessarily being sure that one has everything one needs to be comfortable in the conditions one might encounter, because we don't know what they will be. And how many shirts I need in case it gets really sunny so I don't get sunburnt, and how many I need in case it gets really cold. And you know, I remember I own about three different sleeping bags. It's mildly embarrassing. In fact, I think it's gone up to four. I have to confess. Um, but depending on the conditions, you might want one that's good for twenty degrees below zero, or one that's good for ten degrees above. And uh, they don't really work that well in each other's place. But there's always this choice on this trip: which one do I take? And I did notice the urge in me this year to think, I could take two. I could take one in case it's cold, one in case it's hot. And it's like, don't, don't go there. But that, that movement in us is strong. And yet when we have the courage, when we have the courage to travel lightly, the reward is immediate. 
and direct. Because to travel lightly is to express very directly and concretely a sense of trust in life. To seek to carry a lot with us is essentially to express a basic relationship of fear to life that says, I better take with me all that I'm going to need because I might not find out there what's going to support me. And this whole urge and movement to carry with us things or to locate and dwell somewhere is born out of a fear, an unexamined and unaddressed fear of what will happen if I don't do that. What would it be like to not have a house? You know, we all know the story of the three little pigs. And if you don't put a lot of time into building your house, just build a quick one of straw, it's going to get blown down in your your lunch. If you build a bit more time in it, but you build it out of twigs, it's also going to get blown down and you're going to be, you know, the wolf's supper. If you build a house from bricks, you're safe. It takes a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of bricks. Once you're in there, you can't see the trees or smell the fresh air, but you're safe. And we're kind of trained. I remember having the story of the three little pigs on a record when I was probably about five years old. You know, it gets fed into us pretty early. Better get a house. Get a good one. Get a solid one. And yet any one of us sitting here today might receive a note saying that our house is burnt down. Because today, every day, people like you and me will be sitting in a place like this not expecting to get a note like that and they will get a communication, a telephone call perhaps, or a text message. Your house is on fire. It's burnt down. Right now there are fire crews putting out houses that are burning. I don't know of any particular, but it's, it happens that much. And what would it be for us if our house burnt down? If we were to hear today that it won't be there to go home to. That it won't be there to go home to. What would that be like? It's like, you know, my cat's. My wife, my computer, (laughs) or whatever it might be, with all those things that are so important to me. My books. My children, if one has children at home. But more than that, the sense of my world that's so often tied up with this. There's a fear that might arise in us at that prospect. There might also be an excitement, a sense of, wow, what would that be like? To not know where we were to go after here. To not know what was next. Because there wasn't somewhere we were going back to. I mean, ultimately in life we never go back anywhere. We just like to think that we're going to. In the same way as you can never step into the same river twice. You can never go back somewhere. And yet the sense of home, the sense of yearning for that place to go back to, that place to rest, that can drive us so much, so powerfully. And yet whatever we have of that nature is ultimately built of straw. This is what the Dharma teachings point out to us, that all houses are built of straw. There is no such thing as a brick house. 
It's a fantasy. In terms of the real, what we seek from home, what we seek for that to offer to us, if we're looking for permanent security, if we're looking for permanent safety. Again, not to say that any of the way in which we put time and effort into establishing a house, a home, is not without its value. Equally, that's externally, equally the effort and time we put into establishing ourselves in qualities of heart and mind, of, of loving kindness, of, of concentration, of wisdom, of openness, of mindfulness. Establishing these qualities is important and necessary to, to support the development of, of our potentiality as human beings. And yet seeing the difference, recognizing the difference between that cultivating, establishing, developing of qualities, of wholesome potentialities, and what it means to try and take hold of them or try and make our home in them. So do you notice any way in which you find yourself trying to get more comfortable here? Trying to make this place somewhere where you don't encounter discomfort. Or don't don't encounter the uncertainties or the threatening aspects of experience. It's not like we have to throw ourselves into more and more difficult experience. There's a place for finding balance, for choosing those appropriate places or points of engagement where we turn towards the discomfort, the fear, the uncertainty. And we say, I'm not going to move away from this. I'm not going to try and somehow insulate myself from this. I'm not going to try and build walls around me to keep all of that out. The big bad wolf, basically. We build a house to keep out the big bad wolf. And that is pretty much everything we fear that threatens us. The homemaking process on retreat is essentially the way we try to extend our comfort zone. The way in which we learn how to do it. There's a certain grace when we begin practice and we don't know how to get comfortable here. And it's hell. It's really hard. Everyone thinks, my gosh, why did I do that? to myself and will I ever do it again probably not and yet together with that there's often an immense amount of opening that happens precisely because there is no other choice as we get familiar as we become skilled in meditation and in retreat we can both develop meditative skills and dharmic skills and we can also develop our very unworldly sorry our very worldly and more we could say uh, materialist skills of, of getting more comfortable. And so it's worthwhile sometimes just to stop, just to ask, is there a way in which I'm just kind of looking to cruise here? It's pretty good. Got over the initial humps and bumps and stuff and uh, there's a sort of a plane sailing ahead. I need to stir things up. Sometimes it's important, of course, to really relax in the 
and the openness and the ease and the spaciousness that can come at times to really allow ourselves to inhabit that fully, not to treat it in any way with suspicion that somehow we've got to always be working and it's always got to be tough and it's got to always be a struggle. No, not at all. But just noticing where that sometimes quiet and subtle sense of ah, arrival, I'm here, this is it, where that starts to just come in. That sense of extending our comfort zone, making ourselves comfortable, certain habits, certain patterns. There can be times when it's really useful to say, okay, I want to check that out, I want to explore that. One of my teachers used to say, well, you know, if you want to deepen your practice, it's simple. You know, often asked, well, how do I deepen my practice? It's simple. Eat less, sleep less, sit more. I'd upgrade that to eat less, sleep less, practice more. Because it's not just sitting. It doesn't mean stop eating or stop sleeping. Or try to sit somehow heroically for 10 hours in a row or you know, 20 out of 24 hours. But just look and see. Am I giving myself the invitation to stretch here? And the art of practice really is finding that, that sense of stretch. So we're not just sitting in our comfort zone, but nor are we somehow trying to push ourselves over a cliff and uh, screaming, resisting, and at the same time thinking, this is what I have to do. It's like just sensing, well, where's the stretch? Where is it that it's not just in the comfort zone, but it's not beyond the range that I can tolerate? And yet don't too quickly assume the limitations on your capacity to tolerate because we have remarkably and wonderfully much more capacity than we often trust or imagine. Much more capacity to actually be okay in the midst of things. And that sense of basic trust that I referred to before, that sense that says, I can travel lightly here. Very much founded in experientially learning, exploring and coming to understand that well, actually, you know, the things that I thought I really needed to get by, I can get by without them. It's nice if they're here. I don't mind them. They're not bad or wrong. But actually, I don't need them. And wow, there's a liberation in that. There's a freeing that's immediate and tangible. When we just put something down, it might just be the cup of tea that we always feel we need to get through the morning. And we just say, okay, I'll just try it and see. If I really don't get through the morning... Well, I'll have one tomorrow. Of course, what would not get through the morning mean? We'd be thirsty. We'd be dozy or sleepy, if that's what the tea was offering. We'd be bored because there's no, not the entertainment of something yummy and nice. What would it mean? What it would ultimately mean is to learn to be at home. The difference between trying to make a home and being a home is really the difference between bondage and freedom, between samsara and nibbana. 
to be at home, is not to construct or create something, not to seek to hold on to, to sustain or to repudiate or remove anything, to create no conditions for being at home, is to be at home everywhere. And we have the opportunity in practice and on retreat to explore just how true that might be for us. We don't have to believe it, but we can explore and see, well, is that so? What happens if I take the risk? Maybe allow myself to be without that thing that I thought I absolutely needed, that extra hour of sleep that makes sure I'm not drowsy in the morning. Being drowsy in the morning isn't the end of the world if that's what happens. Or that extra helping of lunch to make sure I'm not hungry at 4.30. What would happen if I was hungry at 4.30? So... To live the homeless life. To, so far as we're able, consciously check or restrain that urge to construct somewhere or hold on to something as the the dwelling place. To allow ourselves to move. To relinquish the urge that seeks security in favour of the, the deeper call of our heart that is moved towards freedom, towards release. To be at home in all things is the invitation of practice, the flowing movement of experience, the fluidity of life cannot be subjected to that which that homemaking urge seeks to subject it. It's not possible to construct something that will not be deconstructed. It's not possible to attain something that will not be possible to lose. It's not possible to arrive somewhere that we can't also depart from. In the very nature of things that are so. And so, to not make our sense of home or being at home dependent upon external conditions or circumstances or things or internal ones. Not dependent on a calm, clear mind. Because we're not guaranteed to always have one. That doesn't mean we don't cultivate and support that potential in us. And value it when it's there. But we can't make our home in it. Because something can happen. And the mind may not be clear. Or calm. We may be stricken with grief or rage. At what can take place in this world. 
but to find in our experience, in our heart, mind, body, life, this capacity that can meet, that can open to, that can be steady in the face of all things. Each and every circumstance can be met in a spirit in which it is given no capacity to dislodge us from from being at home. Nothing in and of itself has that capacity. Just as nothing in and of itself can provide us the home that we might be seeking unconsciously. Equally, no circumstance or thing has in and of itself the capacity to exclude us or to prevent us from being completely, unconditionally at home. Jesus once observed, he said, The rabbit has its hole, the fox has its den. But the son of man, he's referring to himself, the son of man has no place to rest his head. I don't think he was suggesting you throw away your pillows. It's like, what does it mean to not stop anywhere? To not go back? To really know there is nowhere to go back to. The Buddha, in his immediate words after his enlightenment, he spoke too to the same point. He said, following his awakening, being aware of what had just taken place, the momentous transformation that had really poured into his his consciousness, his mind, his life. He said, Through many a birth I wandered in samsara and suffering, seeking but not finding the builder of this house. Painful it is to be born again and again. Sense of building a house and being born, the whole process of self is a process of house building. In the Buddha's metaphor and image, he says, O house builder, you are seen. You shall build no house again. All your rafters are broken. And rafters are the cravings. Your ridge pole is shattered. This is ignorance. My mind has attained the unconditioned. Achieved is the end of craving. So this house building process that the Buddha points to and understands as a metaphor, just as we build houses in the world, we seek to build houses within for the same purpose, for protection and sometimes for, in order to impress the neighbours. This house building within that goes on. To abandon that, to abandon the building of houses, It's not a penance, it's not a sacrifice, it's not somehow a punishment to us. 
when we really understand it, it's a, it's a blessing. It's a blessing. And a precious gift we offer to ourselves. To really embrace the reality that is revealed in the truth of homelessness. In the felt and known experience of what it is to have nowhere to dwell, nowhere to stop, nowhere to return to. And yet to be fully and wholeheartedly present, conscious and awake where one is. Home is not a place or a thing, not an object or an idea or an experience. It's not something that we gain and therefore not something we can lose, understood in this way. The Christian mystic Angelus Celestius said, he said God, but one could equally translate truth, he said, God whose love and joy are everywhere can only come to visit you when you are not there. And a sense of an empty house that is visited by the divine. Truth only comes to visit our house when it's empty, when we're not living there. And in fact, uh, 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 a yogi once observed after a treat in which he'd had some real um, moving experience in the territory, she observed Speaking of home in relationship to her practice, she said, it's only home when I'm not there. It's, it's not actually home. There isn't actually any space to inhabit when it's inhabited by the sense of me and the sense of ownership and the sense of possession and the sense of dwelling, which is essentially what the whole sense of self of I is a conglomeration, a construction, a compaction and a contraction of that grasping, holding, dwelling. And yet when that isn't there, when we take the risk, when we have the courage to trust that in fact the things we seek to pull into or hold in to this that we call me or that that we think of as home or would wish to that all those things in itself the very fact that we need to pull them in and hold them there is telling us something that it's not of their nature and we're fighting it by the fact that we're having to hold and to grasp and that holding and that grasping is hard work it's exhausting and it's painful and letting it go There's a relief, there's a sweetness and and equally just something rather ordinary. The sense of being at home is just that. To understand our life as a journey. What it means to be a visitor here at Gaia House on this planet. In this body, we're also a visitor. In this very moment, to come as a visitor.
And the whole relationship becomes different. The whole experience is transformed. So, the invitation is here. To rest in the the meeting of, the knowing of, the conscious presence with experience, life unfolding moment by moment. To take no particular thing as somehow where you have to or should be. And equally no particular thing is where you should not or must not be. Whether the mind is still or busy, calm or clear, sweet or jagged, likewise the heart and the body. However it is, trust. Trust that what is here is what needs to be here. And that that you have within you in your heart, mind, in your being, that which can recognize this, which can meet it, which can be at home in it. And that which is not just within your or my or any particular heart and mind or body, but that is in and through it all. That is at home, here, already. When we take no thing to be our home, there is no way, no possibility of being without that sense of home. Ultimately, to abandon the seeking of home is to find our true home. So let's sit quietly for a minute or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.